It's having the insight, the vision, the education, the understanding, the culture to be able to accept that one, this can happen, but two, that you can do something about it. We're not helpless and it's not private, it's public. That was Paulette Sr. talking about how we all have to work together to eliminate gender-based violence. Welcome to Busted, a podcast by the Institute for Gender and the Economy, otherwise known as GATE. We team up with leading experts to bust prominent myths about gender and the economy and give you the tools you need to bust each myth yourself. I'm Sonia King, Canada Research Chair in Identity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Toronto, and my pronouns are she and her. And I'm Carmina Ravenera, Senior Research Associate at GATE, and my pronouns are she and her. We've got another special episode today. Back in December, GATE hosted an event we called We Can Break Free, What It Takes to Challenge Gender-Based Violence, as part of the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Our three guest speakers had some important myth-busting insights about gender-based violence, and we're going to share some of those with our busted listeners in this episode. This was such a great event, so I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear from our panelists. Just before we get into it, I want to caution our listeners that we'll be discussing the effects of violence and harassment in this episode, so please take care of yourselves. We've also put some resources in the show notes for anyone who might need support. Now, to start us off, what exactly is gender-based violence, or GBV? According to the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, GBV refers to acts of violence committed against women, transgender, and gender diverse people because of their gender, gender identity, gender expression, or perceived gender. And it can take many different forms, including control, manipulation, stalking, assault, rape, name calling, and harassment. Right. Awful. And we've been talking a lot about intersectionality this season, and I think it's really important for this topic, too. Definitely. The risk of GBV is elevated for people who are marginalized because of some aspect of their identity. For instance, if they have a disability, are LGBT, low-income, racialized, Indigenous, or immigrants. They also may have fewer opportunities to access resources. One example is that Statistics Canada reports that 61% of Indigenous women are likely to experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime, compared to 44% of non-Indigenous women. Paulette Senior, who we heard from at the top of this episode, is the CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. She spoke at our event about the importance of intersectionality in developing supports for survivors of GBV. And so intersectionality is a critical component of how we do work. Let me sort of back up by saying that um, it's always been the way that we should work, no matter what we're doing. But within the sector uh, that we occupy, the space that we've been working with, where I've been working with for decades, um, you know, it's always been a call from racialized, indigenous, LGBTQ folks uh, who, uh, whose identity matters in multiple ways that they are, have always been saying, this, what you're doing doesn't serve me well. And quite possibly, uh, a lot of the folks that we've been serving have fallen through the cracks, right? 
And that's for reasons that's no different from any other sector, right? It could be colonialism, it could be racism, it could be all kinds of isms that get in the way of serving people well. And so being able to work through and view the people that you're working with through that intersectional lens, understanding the experiences through which they come to you for service, but also they, them standing at the intersection of, of the various identities, which could be race and gender and uh, sexual identity and, and ability or disability. All of that matters in serving people well. And so our sector for decades have missed the mark. We've heard that through a number of sources, most recently through the uh, Battered Women Support Services who just released a report called The Color of Violence. And, and this particular kind of data gathering has been a missing within the sector where you're looking at the experiences of racialized folks who say that they're not being served well. And uh, as a result of that, they are not participating or opting out of the services we're providing. It could be because they're afraid that the police will be called if they approach us uh, and tell their story. It could be because no one in that service program or organization or someone that's gathering their information actually looks like them, sounds like them. Right? So how are they able to understand that experience of, uh, and be able to walk in their shoes? Or it could be that there is uh, discrimination, systemic discrimination that exists. Although we come from a sector that has experienced exclusion based on gender, understand that the gender that people present with cannot be the only thing we look at. There has to be, at, we have to be looking at the whole person in terms of everything they come through our door with. Okay, so members of marginalized groups not only experience GBV uniquely, but they also face more barriers to accessing supports to cope with GBV, including straight-up discrimination and lack of representation. Exactly. So that intersectional lens is super important whenever we're talking about GBV. Just something to always keep in mind. Now let's get into busting a major myth around GBV. There seems to be a pretty common perception that GBV is something that happens privately, in the home, and that means that it's a private problem for partners or families to deal with. This framing is not only harmful, but it's also inaccurate. The impact of GBV isn't contained within the home. It is a human rights violation, and it has consequences that reverberate throughout our societies. It damages well-being, health, equality, and prosperity, and it also negatively impacts workplaces and the labor market. We heard a lot about this at our event from Harmi Mendoza, the Executive Director of the Women Abuse Council of Toronto. She told us about some of the council's recent research on employment and safety among racialized women who have experienced GBV. Gender-based violence often spills into the workplace. As a matter of fact, the report you talk about um, uh, provides information about what survivors have to deal with when looking for employment while at work and the long-term effects of trauma. And so just to provide a bit of context, uh, let me tell you that our report examines, examines the intersections between employment, trauma, and with a particular focus on racialized women, talking about what you just mentioned, intersections. 
Uh, we gather quantitative and qualitative data. So we did that through a total of 59 online uh, surveys and 24 in-depth um, interviews, uh, which were completed early uh, this year in January and February. And today I want to share with you what we heard and what we saw. In terms of uh, how gender-based violence impacts women while looking for a job or employment, this is what we saw. 71% of them indicated that trauma had impacted them deeply in their ability to find employment. Why? They were too overwhelmed, stressed, feeling numbness, depression, and anxiety. Almost half of the respondents, 47% to be exact, told us that they were prevented from uh, looking for employment. And that means physically restrained. They were not allowed to leave uh, their, their home. Um, why? Because um, they were told that that would take away their expected role in their home, like caregiving duties or responsibilities. 49%, almost half of the respondents, told us that their partner or ex-partner had sabotaged their efforts to find work by using household work or childcare responsibilities. And 29%, almost 30%, told us that their uh, partner or ex-partner used their immigration status, for example, to prevent them from finding work. They were threatened to, for example, uh, withdraw sponsorship applications. Now, what about while at work? And to going back to the question, um, while they are employed, well, um, we heard that employment sabotage, it's a very, very common um, tactic uh, partners or ex-partners used. And oh, some other disruption tactics, for example, um, changing transportation arrangements or uh, childcare duties or uh, receiving harassing calls or texts while at work. And I want you to leave with this percent, this, this information. It's, this is actually um, very important. 80% of the respondents while at work reported that their productivity and effectiveness at work had been impacted by the abuse. So if you're an employer and you see that there is uh, something happening with a staff, I want you to think about that number, 80% of them. 53% of them lost at least one job due to harassment and stalking in the workplace. Now, um, there's one other statistic number I'd, li I'd like to share. 15% uh, reported their partner or ex-partner had threatened to hurt their coworkers or cause damage to their employer. So that gives you a bit of an idea and how gender-based violence does spill into workplaces, not only while at work, but while looking for uh, employment. So all of those stats she talks about really show how GBV and the trauma that comes with it make it harder, if not impossible, for survivors to support themselves, which of course affects their well-being. And people who work with survivors can be directly or indirectly harmed by GBV as well. It's definitely not something that happens and stays in the home. It affects survivors' entire lives and the lives of those around them. 
And Harmi also talked about the long-term impacts of having to cope with GBV and its consequences. Supporting survivors isn't just about helping them get out of an abusive relationship. There's much more to it because the trauma and other effects last much longer. The impacts are long-lasting. Um, and not only because of the trauma uh, survivors have to endure, but also because of so many other uh, systemic barriers are challenging. And I'm going to name a few, and this list is not exhaustive because we know cases are very complex. Um, but for example, financial hardship, it's uh, nearly universal with uh, survivors. Uh, we heard uh, from and we, we continue to talk to and consult. Um, so income and housing insecurity, we know about the housing crisis in Toronto and how hard it is to find affordable housing. Um, dealing with issues of economic abuse, like for example, uh, coerced debt or bad credit, it's a long lasting consequence. Um, health costs, lost wages or reallocation costs are also uh, key. Um, and legal proceedings, you know, anything, family law, criminal law, uh, child custody, we all know how long um, those systems um, uh, are in terms of how long it'll take for a matter to be brought forward. And so they have to deal with that. Um, and remember the report I uh, mentioned initially, let me give you another number. I love numbers. I find that they illustrate. Let me tell you, 83% of the respondents um, told us that IPV impacted their career opportunities and progression. For example, gaps in employment is a barrier to secure future employment. So when you are hiring and you see there is a gap in unemployment, I want you to remember a little bit of these numbers because sometimes there is a reason for that. And sometimes we are not thinking about that. I'm not saying that everybody who has that, that gap in employment will be a survivor, but it's certainly these numbers tell us, tells us a lot about what's happening behind scenes. And also, um, it's important to, like I said, be educated, know what's happening out there and what our survivors telling us in terms of their lived experience. We've put the link to this report in our show notes for anyone who wants to dig more into it. Basically, hearing all of this and considering that 44% of women in Canada have self-reported experiencing intimate partner violence at some point in their lives, and that 59% of trans and gender diverse people have reported experiencing physical or sexual assault, it's clear that GBV is a pervasive and systemic problem that needs to be addressed at a societal level, not at the individual level. The health, social, and economic costs of GBV are enormous. Since this podcast is about gender and the economy, let's talk a bit more about GBV and organizations. What responsibilities do organizations and workplaces have when it comes to GBV? What should they do if someone is experiencing GBV outside of work or even at work? Great question. Pam Hrick, Executive Director of the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, or LEAF, talked to us about the legal obligations that organizations have when it comes to gender-based violence. So under Ontario law, under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, there's actually an employer obligation to have policies and processes and, and trainings in place 
to deal with uh, what is broadly called workplace violence, but that specifically includes domestic violence. So it would, it would capture much of what Harmi was, was talking mm. about. Uh, and it's incumbent upon employers to be aware of those signs of intimate partner violence and domestic violence. Again, a lot of the things that Harmi was describing that uh, the interviews and consultations found. Um, employers have uh, an obligation um, to take all reasonable precautions uh, to protect uh, workers in, in the workplace from that type of, of violence, not just if they know what's going on, but if they ought reasonably to know, sort of to deploy a a legal phrase that they should know uh, what's going on. So that's why it's important for there to be um, really uh, robust policies and practices in place uh, for employers to make themselves aware of some of the uh, issues that relate to domestic violence impacting the workplace and employees uh, at work if folks are showing up late, uh, uh, to use uh, one example, not simply to attribute that to um, something they ought to be able to overcome and to hold that against them may be a point to inquire further about. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are important responsibilities that employers uh, have. Uh, there's also, uh, in terms of uh, legal requirements in Ontario, there is um, a right to access uh, paid leave uh, when encountering a domestic violence, experiencing domestic violence or sexual violence, um, uh, five up to five paid days uh, of leave, an employer has an obligation uh, to give for specific purposes for people uh, who are experiencing uh, DV or sexual violence. And there's more extended leave um, benefits under the Employment Standards Act as well. So it's incumbent upon employers to know about their obligations, to share that information <clears throat> with staff and to make it clear that it is uh, a collective uh, obligation as well and to uh, give uh, colleagues the, the tools to identify uh, when there may be an issue arising related to domestic violence, to be clear about how that will be dealt with. And beyond legal obligations, there are other things organizations can and should do to set up a culture that's ready to support survivors of GBV. Harmi and Paulette talked about this issue, the role that organizations have to play in GBV prevention and about creating cultures of safety. Be trained, ask for training, set aside time for training, be prepared. I think it's not, it's no longer about if it will happen. It's about when will this happen to me? Chances are you will likely deal with this situation. So prepare yourself for that. Make sure that you're aware of what you need to have in-house as an employer, but also all of the other different support systems that you should be aware of. And, and I would add to that really um, creating a culture of safety for folks to be able to say what's happening to them. So it's not just an HR matter that's shoved to HR, yeah. but that every person who has responsibility and accountability around uh, you know, supervising folks need to be trained and need to um, adopt a very different kind of approach that says this is a private affair, right? Um, so, so we know um, gender-based violence is prevalent in society, um, and uh, we know that it starts from that the issues around harassment and and sexual uh, assault and abuse happens. It's rampant in society. 
So it's only natural that these issues would come up in the workplace. So being prepared uh, and creating that culture of, of, of safety, but also educate, as Harmi said. Harmi also talked about three words for employers to remember when it comes to gender-based violence and intimate partner violence. And I'm going to leave you with three words. If, if I can ask you for anything, remember these three words when you leave today. And if you're an employer or a um, co-worker, APR, A for accountability, P for prevention, and R for response systems. Accountability, it's all about assessment. I'm going to ask a question I don't want you to answer to anybody, just to yourself. Assessment under accountability. As an employer or a colleague, how ready are you to respond to a disclosure of IPB? Don't answer to me, answer to yourself. Second item under accountability, communication. How well have you expressed your commitment to support victims of IPB? How well have you communicated that to your colleagues or to your employers? Uh, employees, sorry. Don't answer, just sit with it. Second letter, P, remember APR. P, prevention. This is all about policies and procedures. Do you have clear and comprehensive policies and procedures? Have you had your employees or as a coworker, have you been educated on your policies and procedures? And when was the last time um, your staff or you were trained on bystander intervention or how safely to challenge um, harmful behavior. Do you um, or your employees know the role of observers to create a sense of collective responsibility when witnessing harmful behaviors? And response systems, remember they are? This is all about reporting and responding to complaints. Every workplace is different, and with the pandemic, uh, we are now dealing with different uh, workplaces. You know, there are hybrid workplaces, there are only virtual workplaces. So your response systems have to respond to your reality and your workplace. Um, now, if I lived in a perfect world, and if I would ask for the perfect system, there's one, one key question I would ask in terms of, our workplace's response system, and that is that it should empower employees by providing informed support services. What do I need? You're gonna have to investigate a complaint or a disclosure. When you do that, or while you do that, please make sure you understand the general effects of trauma. Showing empathy over judgment, it's so important. Foster safety. Be responsive to cultural, historical, and gender inclusion. Accountability, prevention, and response systems. Those are all useful tools for employers to remember and design for. But as you said, this is a major societal problem, and GBV isn't going to be solved in the workplace alone. What other recommendations did our panelists have for eliminating GBV? They talked about how all parts of society have a role to play in making change for the better. Pam talks about investing in Canada's National Action Plan to end gender-based violence, healthy sex education, and changing our justice systems to better serve survivors. Just because we have a strong and robust definition of consent in the law in Canada does not mean that we have 
a legal system, a uh, criminal system that does a really good job of dealing with violations of consent, also known as sexual assault. And in my view, it's because it's not built to center the needs and healing and accountability uh, uh, desires of survivors. It's a system that asks survivors to go and tell their story to strangers, report it to the police, uh, to tell their story again and their experience again to, to the Crown, to, uh, if it gets to this point, participate in a, in a trial where they share this intimate violation in front of a, a courtroom, again, full of strangers. And they're subjected to cross-examination by defense counsel who will often try to suggest they're misremembering, making it up. Did they do something to invite it? Were they wearing something in particular? And those are still things that come up in questioning, in cross-examination. So you can just sort of tell from that partial description of what survivors need to go through in the criminal system that it's not built for them. So this is one of the reasons why LEAF uh, is really interested in, in doing work right now to explore uh, alternatives to the criminal legal system to give further choices to survivors on how they can uh, deal with the assault they've experienced and center their own healing and advance their own uh, vision of accountability. And specifically, we're talking about restorative justice and transformative justice options, which are uh, really uh, grounded uh, in community and in particular, uh, Indigenous, uh, Black, trans and queer communities have been doing this for uh, decades. And, uh, and, and we're really interested in, uh, in understanding that better and promoting uh, that as an alternative for uh, survivors. I think at the systemic level, we need to collectively call for governments to uh, properly to endorse proper sex uh, education for youth and health relationship education for youth. We need governments to fund prevention and education, which is a pillar of the blueprint for the National Action Plan to uh, end gender-based violence and violence against women, which is a civil society uh, document. We need to see the money flow from the federal government and the commitment to the NAP. Uh, to be able to properly uh, ensure that people are accessing that education at a young age and at a system level really working to prevent gender-based violence and, and sexual violence from happening in the, in the first place. And Paulette talked about the work being done by the Canadian Women's Foundation in schools and towards education. We fund a number of programs across the country uh, that are community-based, where organizations are working with schools on uh, on a number of things. And so, the you know, I think one of the things that's, that is egregious is the fact that gender-based violence is preventable, and we just have to be smart about when we start to teach, um, teach this, but also um, to invest in this, because it's important. So, um, so we will fund um, organizations that do work with girls and young people, uh, gender diverse folks, uh, to talk about um, what is a healthy relationship? What does it look like? Really exploring what are the signs of something that is healthy, but also know what, it, what are the signs of something that is not healthy. You know, being able to recognize control and coerciveness um, as a, and, and, and know what that looks like so that you know, before they go into, you know, higher education, especially, you know, on campuses, that they get that and they get that to their core. So they can bring that teaching as they bring other teachings uh, that, that are mandatory in schools. It sounds like there's so much that needs to be done to address GBV. 
but it's great to hear from our panelists that there are some very actionable steps we can take to make change. I'm glad we got to hear about their organizations as well, because they're doing a lot of this work right now. So to wrap things up, if someone says that gender-based violence needs to be addressed in private, what can we say to bust this myth? I think you can point to the simple fact that GBV affects every aspect of society and therefore isn't a private issue at all. It damages people's health, well-being, and happiness, their relationships with their families and friends, their ability to work, and so much more. And it's very pervasive. It's not just a few people here and there who experience it. So it's clear that GBV needs to be addressed societally as well through investment in education, prevention, and solid support systems. And that means everyone can and should be involved in making change. On that note, I want to wrap things up with a word from Paulette about how we can move forward. So if folks know that there's a a culture of support and love around them, then there's much that can be prevented. So I think education is important, but also having uh, a non-judgmental approach to responding is also really important. Thanks to Pam Hrick from the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, Hermi Mendoza from Women Abuse Council of Toronto, and Paulette Senior from the Canadian Women's Foundation for contributing their insights to this episode. Busted is written and produced by Carmina Rebanera and me, Sonia King, and edited by Ian Gormley. Make sure to catch the last episode of Busted Season 2 next month. Until next time, happy myth busting. Happy myth busting.